Hey, and welcome to the All Things All People podcast, where we try our best to understand the world around us through understanding world world of religions, apologetics, and everything else. I'm your host, Jeremy Jenkins, and today we are going to dig into some awesome topics that came from submitted questions on Instagram and through email. Uh, for future reference, make sure to follow me on Instagram at allthings.allpeople, and you can also contact me at Jeremy at allthingsallpeople.org if you have questions that you want submitted for future episodes that might be a little bit too lengthy for Instagram make sure you follow me on there today we are going to dig in to some topics that I get questions about all the time I'm sure if you're a Christian you get questions about it all the time because to outsiders looking in Christianity especially Protestant Christianity can seem like just like a chaotic mess, a hodgepodge of differing beliefs and even competing beliefs. Uh, You have different groups that seemingly belong to the same organization being Christianity. But yet, for the outsider and even for the insider, it can be like untangling a ball of thread trying to figure out exactly who believes what. And then also on top of that, you have some sectarian groups. Um, Some people call them cults and sometimes they are deserved of that title, which we're going to talk about. And you have one group of Christians that have differing beliefs and even competing beliefs at times. Think maybe baptism, um, you know, maybe the organization of church in the case of high church and low church groups, but yet they still seem to get along for the most part. They, they recognize each other as Christians, but then you also have these other groups that say they are Christians or what we would call what I call Orthodox Christians. Um, but it is difficult to reconcile some of their beliefs and allow them, uh, to be considered, as part of the the mainstream consideration of Christianity, which is uh, even more difficult now in in today's world because we don't like to exclude people from anything. Uh, if somebody says they're a Christian, we want to take them at their word because you know at least in, in many branches of Christianity, there's there's a push to not judge. There's a push to not, um, like I said, be exclusionary. But we have to stop and realize. You know, whether you're a Christian or not, the the best view of truth is that it is objective. And, and, and that's like shifting sand in today's world. There's fewer and fewer people who believe in objective truth. But when you believe in objective truth, when you believe that, yes, there can be many interpretations for scripture or a Bible verse or the words of Christ in some cases, uh, there can be only one meaning. There can be only one intention of the author and in this case, the author being God when we're talking about scripture. And so, uh, so we do have to be exclusionary. Robert Zacharias says, truth by definition excludes. And so today we're going to dig into a couple of different questions. Some of them just super interesting and, and even really important for us to try and understand. And like I said earlier, make sure to follow me on, on at allthings.allpeople so that you don't miss any opportunities to submit some questions. Um, there's going to be a bunch of these uh, 
discussion episodes where I throw out a topic and people on Instagram and, and Facebook and through email submit questions. So make sure that you don't miss out on that. Um, but the first question I got through in my Instagram story uh, was the one that we really need to start with, which is what is the difference between a cult and a different religion? I've seen, uh, I serve as a pastor. That's, that's my, uh, my full-time gig, uh, my full-time calling. And I've noticed that among some Christians, there's a propensity to call any differing belief, differing religion, a cult. And it seems as if, of course, like we've said, truth by definition excludes. But I wonder if sometimes we misuse that word, that word cult. Um, so first and foremost, the word cult historically has not always meant what we typically may mean now. Uh, the word cult literally just means a great devotion to a person, idea, object, movement, or work. Uh, so you'll hear the phrase often cult of personality. Uh, that's what I think of when I think of the, the historic definition of cult, which is that sometimes, especially politically, you'll find that a person uh, brings about a, a cult-like uh, atmosphere around them. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean religious. Um, some people would say that uh, leaders like um, uh, Putin in Russia, um, even maybe uh, to some people, uh, they would look at what's going on in the United States right now with some supporters of President Donald Trump as that there's a cult of personality. Now, I'm not saying that these people worship these political leaders, but that they, they hang on, on their every word. Um, and so when you take this into the arena of religion, uh, we think historically of the Christian church and many would say the Catholic church when they think of saints, when they think of um, Mary, that there is a cult around them, that, that there's an extreme veneration. So historically, the word cult has not always meant what it means now, which to most people, at least in uh, the Western world, is that in modern circles, cult has taken on meaning uh, a typically small group devoted to unorthodox, strange, sometimes sinister, offshoot beliefs. So when you think about cults, uh, when you think about the modern usage of that word, you, you might come to mind uh, David Koresh in the, the Waco uh, incident, uh, which I think Netflix just did a miniseries on that. I haven't gotten around to watch it. If you watched it and you think I'd like it, let me know in the comments. Um, but you think of David Koresh, and you think of the events in Waco, you think of Jim Jones, and, and just the, that's where these sinister beliefs come in, is that oftentimes we think of these small offshoot groups that ended really, really poorly because they were obviously a cult. They hung on one person's words, and they took those words as, as law, as canon, and when that person's instructions and teachings led them to destruction, they followed. And so those are the, the most extreme versions of, of a cult. But the question was, how do we tell the difference or what is the difference between a cult and a different religion? And they gave an example, i.e. Islam versus uh, the Watchtower Bible Tract Society, otherwise known as Jehovah's Witnesses. And see, in the United States right now, we have an extremely interesting thing where you literally have people of other sectarian faiths who say they're Christians knocking on your door in the case of Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, especially, but even some other groups. I, I, recently, I got stopped at Walmart by somebody uh, from an offshoot Christian group who said that 
uh, there was a mother God, and they pointed to an obscure verse in Revelation. And so anyway, so it's not just Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. But we, are, now more than ever, are extremely familiar with offshoot sectarian groups. And so sometimes we need to be able to differ between, okay, so obviously Islam is a completely different religion. And then, you know, you look at what I would consider Orthodox Christianity, which would be, you know, mainline Protestantism, the evangelical movement. Um, in some cases, you would consider Catholicism is as Orthodox Christianity, depending on the topic. Um, but, but most people don't look at Catholics and say anything like, oh, they're part of a different group. Usually, uh, Protestant Christians and Catholic Christians get along well enough to say that they're both Christian. But then we look at some of these other groups in, in the question specifically referred to Jehovah's Witnesses. And so what is the difference? Well, um, we have to realize that not every false religion is a cult. And, and, and if anything, we, we get into the point where maybe we're dealing with just semantics. Maybe we just want to be able to say that everybody else is a cult and, and our religion is true. And, and, by the way, it's, it's perfectly okay to say that your religion is the only true one. This idea that all religions are true to some degree or that they all lead up the same mountain to the same destination is ridiculous. Uh, Islam and Christianity have completely conflicting philosophies, um, completely different ways to salvation. They have completely different views of authority. They have completely different scriptures. And so it's perfectly okay for Christians to look at Muslims and say, that is a false religion. But is it a cult? I would say no, because... As we're going to talk about later on, there's certain defining characteristics of a cult. First of all, Islam is not small. Um, Islam is the second largest religion in the world, and some would say it's the fastest growing. Um, and, and there's part, certain parts of the world where they're 95 and 100% Muslim. And so the small aspect, um, or even the idea that there's one authority figure in, in a Sunni Muslim, Islam there is no authority figure. There's, there's imams and there's, um, you know, local regional leaders, but there is no one overarching figure. Um, and so to say that Islam would be a cult is obviously incorrect. So the way that you tell the difference to get to the question is, is what is the difference between a cult and a different religion is Islam never masquerades as an offshoot or the true version of Christianity. But instead, they, they, they clearly delineate themselves from Christians. They clearly delineate themselves from everybody. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses are not so. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, oftentimes when they knock on your door, and I've had plenty of conversations with um, many of, of each group, um, they very much want to, to con convince you that they are one and the same to a certain degree, or in the case, especially of Jehovah's Witnesses, which leads us to our next question, is that they are actually the true version of, of Christianity and that your version of Christianity is wrong. And that at some point in history, their version, whether by, you know, a prophet, a revelation in the case of the church of Latter-day Saints, uh, you know, these two tablets who showed up and, you know, um, that they are the true version of Christianity and you need to follow my version because your version is wrong. And so, so that's how you can sort of begin to tell the difference between a different religion and a cult. How closely do they associate themselves with you? And does it seem as if it's an offshoot, uh, you know, derivative of Orthodox Christianity, which has a historical background going all the way back to the person of Christ? We don't need to manufacture anything in the, in the 19th century, 20th century, 21st century to say, oh, there's something new. Um, that's what most of these offshoot groups have done, which leads us to our next question, uh, which is from 
uh, at Efren Sierra Jr., uh, who is a follower of mine on Instagram. Thank you for submitting the question. Uh, he says, hello, brother. Thank you for your insight uh, and your love of God. Thank you. Uh, I had a few discussions with JWs, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. I've had them sometimes in person, sometimes in social media. They are convinced that they are the chosen people and that their Bible version is the one true Bible version. They always point to passages about Jesus where he's the son of God, emphasis on son, that he is given authority, emphasis on given. And they seem to flip the word of God when it says John 1, 1. Uh, and, and we'll talk about the first chapter of John and how Jehovah's Witnesses uh, change that. So th there's a lot to point out. My question is, how can I speak truth in the sense of Jesus is actually God? And then he tacks on. He says, oh yeah, one more question. How come the name Jehovah is no longer in most Bibles or Yahweh? So, so let's start with that one because the idea that um, this group, Jehovah's Witnesses, have named themselves Jehovah's Witnesses. And, and interestingly enough, Jehovah's Witnesses, um, they, they make some pretty big claims about uh, that word Jehovah. And so let's just do a, a brief historical rundown on Jehovah's Witnesses because I think this is a group that many of us are familiar with and we might even think we're intimately familiar with because you know they're always around um, but we don't really know a ton about them okay so Jehovah's Witnesses was founded uh, in 1872 by Charles Taze Russell uh, Charles Taze Russell grew up in church um, but struggled often with the doctrines of hell and the Trinity and at 18 he began a Bible study in Pittsburgh in 1879, he began to publish his teachings, and in 1884, he began the Watchtower and Zion's Tract Society. Uh, circulation of the first Watchtower magazine was 6,000 issues per month, which even today would be really impressive. Today, over 100,000 books and 800,000 copies of its magazine are printed a day. Let me, let me say that again. Over 100,000 books and 800,000 copies of the Watchtower magazine are printed a day. And it all began with Russell, who taught that the Bible could only be understood according to his interpretations. So, so right away, we have a stark difference between um, Jehovah's Witnesses, because this, this belief has, has continued on today, that, that Jehovah's Witnesses um, leaders uh, are, are essential in the correct interpretation of Scripture. You don't see that in any other form of, of Christianity, at least any um, Orthodox form. And so right away, you begin to see the fabric of cult-like behavior is that leadership is absolutely essential. Now, to those of you listening, you say, well, Scripture, specifically Paul writes that teachers are essential, that, that shepherds, overseers are essential. But he never says that they are absolutely needed to understand the Bible. We have to remember that, especially in the cases of Paul, these, these books, as we call them, started off as letters to corporate gatherings, to large groups of Christians. And they were often read without any instruction or interpretation tacked on until after it was read. And so this idea that um, interpretation, application is a downhill stream is not historical. It's not de defensible in my opinion, but we see it early on in the life of the, the, the Watchtower Society, starting with Charles Taze Russell. So in 1916, Russell dies and a man named Joseph Rutherford becomes the president of the Watchtower Society. And in 1931, Rutherford changes the name to Jehovah's Witnesses, what we know it. And this is important because uh, the question asked, you know, why is it that they claim to be like the one true church. Their Bible is the one true translation, the new world translation. 
Well, they believe that they are the only one true religion. Interpreting the Bible as the apostles and early Christians did before it was corrupted in the third or fourth centuries. This is really interesting because so many non-Christian groups base their authority as the one true religion off of the early corruption of scripture. Um, And so this is the case in Islam. This is the case in Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, Those are probably the two best examples. And, in, and then in the case of the Latter-day Saints, you have books being added, um, the Book of Mormon, um, you know, other instances. But it's, it's important right away, okay, because I know many of you listening, watching, are interested in apologetics. So many of these claims, in, in the case of Islam, we're talking 600 AD. In the case of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, it's literally 1,800, almost 1,900 years after the events of the Bible. And they're making these claims that the Bible was corrupted, specifically the New Testament was corrupted in the third or fourth centuries. So now though, what's interesting is we have manuscript analysis, something that we did not have early on in the life of the church. And and, and now I I had professors in college who told me every time a, a pile of dirt is turned over in Israel, something changes in New Testament studies. And so now it's important to at least familiarize yourself with a a basic understanding of what's happening in the world of manuscripts, because this idea that the Bible was corrupted in the third or fourth century is not defensible. Like it's not like we have manuscripts that go as far back uh, enough to say that that's just not true, or at least to turn it around on somebody making that claim and say, point it out to me. Where is it? Um, It's important when you're discussing these things with somebody at your door or somebody at a coffee shop, a friend, a family member who's making these claims to ask, where did they get that information? Because as you'll find, specifically with sectarian groups like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, they've been coached and they've been coached really well. And these are people who are well-intentioned. They want you to believe what they believe for the same reasons that you want them to believe what you believe. Um, But so this claim... Uh, which it all really hinges on is that the Bible was corrupted by early Christians in the third or fourth century is essential in Jehovah witnesses, uh, Jehovah's witnesses theology. Um, and so they have uh, many differing beliefs, um, especially when it comes to the end times eschatologically, they, they have differing beliefs about the 144,000 mentioned in revelation. Um, they believe that hell uh, is not a literal place of suffering, but instead they believe in what's called annihilationism. Um, which is the idea that uh, people will not be perpetually uh, tortured or, or tormented, but instead will cease to exist, um, which has even made its way into Protestant Christianity in some respects. One of my favorite theologians made a huge impact on me. John Stott seemed to dabble with annihilationism. Um, but what's really essential when it comes to Jehovah's Witnesses in, in most groups you have to kind of stop and, and instead of cherry picking these little uh, secondary ideas, right? Because we see the reason that they're a cult is not that they believe in annihilationism. Um, you might completely disagree with that, but there's, there's ways to interpret scripture easily to say that that belief is, uh, is orthodox to a certain degree, right? Guys like John Stott can do it. Um, you know, so, you know, who am I to say that that makes somebody a cult? But what really... What really matters is what do groups say about God, the person of Jesus? And so interestingly enough, and it gets back to uh, the, the question, which is um, Jehovah's Witnesses say that the one true name of God is Jehovah. 
and that he is one, they do not believe in the Trinity. Going back to Charles Russell's struggle as an early, uh, as a young man with the concept of the Trinity. They believe Jesus was created as a lesser God and that the Holy Spirit is a force of God, not a personage itself, not a person itself. So right there, um, right there written in red is the reasons why Jehovah's Witnesses are not um, part of Orthodox Christianity, because those are the core tenets of Orthodox Christianity. And so I know that many of us want to say, well, well, Jeremy, they, they're nice and they're really well-intentioned and they knocked on every door in my neighborhood. And so they're, they're really good people. So why can't they just, why can't we just consider them Christians? Well, because they believe that Jesus is not God, because they believe that the Holy Spirit isn't even an individual, uh, much less a, a person, but instead is just a force is just an inanimate force directed by God, the father or, or God in general, because there's no Trinity. And so, uh, this is important to draw a clear line in the sand and say, Hey, uh, you have different beliefs than me. Let's talk about that. And so this is where it gets a little bit, uh, difficult. Um, the, per, you know, the person who asked this question talked about why is it that they believe that their one Bible is true? Going back to the corrupted theory of the third and fourth centuries, the best place to find this is in the first chapter of John. Your translation of John says in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. Um, the new world translation, which is the, the Jehovah's witness specific translation says that the word was a God. And they manipulate the Greek. They manipulate the tenses in Greek to, to, to show, oh, there's uh, an indefinite article a, um, before God. And this just isn't true. <laughs> um, and the way to show this to, to somebody who's sitting with you, who's questioning this is that, um, the first chapter of John says something like, um, all things were created through him. Nothing that exists, uh, came, you know, from anywhere else other than him. And so it's important to show them and say, Okay, so if he was a created being, if he was a lesser God, when it says that all things that exist were created through him, that would also include him. Um, and, and of course, they're going to dance around this, but it's, it's, it's important for you to understand that the scriptures, even in their version, has uh, the sentence where it says that all things that were ex- existed were created through him. Nothing that exists would have come into existence without Jesus. And so he must himself be eternal. And if he is eternal, past eternal, just like God, the father, he himself has to be in uh, equitable nature to God. He can't be a lesser God. He can't be a created God. If all things that exist were created through him. And so right there, we see a snapshot of, of Jehovah's witness theology. And then it takes us to this, this other question, which is why is the word Jehovah not found in the Bible? Or at least most of the time it's not found in the Bible. Okay. So, um, interestingly enough, um, the Bible is, is you'll, you'll, you'll find in most modern translations, um, use the word Lord instead of Yahweh or Jehovah, because Jews did not want to pronounce um, or mispronounce the name of Yahweh, the personal name of God. Um, remember that Jews would have hung on every word of the Ten Commandments, where it says, "Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Do not mis- you know, do not misuse the name of the Lord." So they did not want to risk violating that commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And so the Jews began substituting God's name, Yahweh, in Hebrew, um, with the word Adonai, which is Lord. And so the, that substitution took place. And so when they would read Yahweh, they would say Adonai, Lord. 
Um, and then that, it made its way into the translations. So finally, since the early Hebrew text did not contain vowels, but only consonant, it got to the point where actually early Jews did not know how to pronounce Yahweh. So if you can imagine, um, so in Hebrew, it's, it's uh, called the Tetragrammaton, um, which is essentially the English transliteration Y-H-W-H, Y-H-W-H. And so if I put Y-H-W-H in front of you and asked you how to pronounce it, you would probably say Yahweh. But if I said, well, what if the vowels are actually an E and a U? What if the vowels are an O and an A? Because Hebrew early on had no vowels. It wasn't written with vowels. And so throughout time, because they were substituting the word Lord, Adonai, in, and they weren't saying it, and they weren't writing the vowels, they forgot. They essentially didn't know how to pronounce it. And so that, that spiraled even to an even bigger crisis because now they definitely can't say the word because nobody actually knows how to pronounce it. And so uh, there's a guy named C. John Collins who was, uh, he's the Old Testament editor for the ESV Study Bible. He says that led to a particular problem, namely that by the time the vowels were added, nobody was pronouncing the divine name any longer. And the Jews, when they would read it, would always say Adonai. We know this. Uh, because it's an early practice because in the Septuagint or the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Greek translation made as early as the third century BC, they were already translating the divine name Yahweh with the Greek word for the Lord. And so that's what's become the convention for all Bible translations is to do precisely that. And so because Jesus, before uh, even Jesus showed up on the scene, the early uh, Hebrew scholars who were writing Adonai or Lord, um, Modern translations do it the same. Now, the way that you differentiate is you've probably noticed in your Bibles that um, Lord looks different, right? So if it's capital L, lowercase O-R-D, that typically means that it's Adonai. Um, if it's lowercase L, O-R-D, that's usually, I believe, Elohim, which is just kind of the word for God. And it's used for other gods, too. Um, but then all caps, L-O-R-D, or in some cases like a bold version or, you know, you really need to look at the first page of your Bible to see what your translators did. But that typically means Yahweh. Um, and so it's a really interesting thing. And, and, and it helps us, too, because if you can begin to differentiate between just even how those words are used, right? So if it's an all caps Lord, that's Yahweh. That's the personal name of God. Um, and so uh, taking us all the way back now to, to Jehovah's Witnesses, it's insane that, there could, that there's a group such as Jehovah's Witnesses who say that the one true name of God is Jehovah. When in Hebrew, the language in which God essentially revealed himself to, he chose Israel as his chosen people. He, he revealed himself to Moses, who was writing in Hebrew um, and, 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 and really other Semitic languages in the same uh, region were the same in the sense that they did, they had no J. There was no J sound. Um, it was a, it was like a guttural Y, like a yeah, yeah. And so, um, of course, in, in Pittsburgh in the 19th century, you would have somebody foolish enough to say that the one true name of, of God is actually a completely different sound than was available in the region in which he revealed himself. Um, and, and by the way, it's a Greek sound. It's a Western sound, which, which plays into like this Western centric um, new religion movement that the Jehovah's Witnesses are. And so, as you can see, just even from this cursory like survey, 
the Jehovah's Witnesses make a lot of claims that they just essentially cannot back up. They are extremely good at defending them. They are extremely good at uh, knocking on the door of somebody who's un, uh, unsuspecting and, and making these claims, boldly rushing through them as if you know, they, they're as true as anything else, but they are very, very far from it. And so, uh, so you have it, there you have it with Jehovah's Witnesses. The next question is, is more difficult because it involves a group that many of us are familiar with, but most of us don't know anything about. And it can be difficult to say, okay, well, what do they believe in and who are they? Okay, so the question is, Seventh-day Adventists, cult or tradition-heavy denomination? So I want to start off by saying this. I, I hate friendly fire. I hate um, seeing Christian theologians, Christian apologists, or Christians in general, spending all their time poking at other groups that, you know, might be considered uh, Orthodox Christianity, because it's just a waste of time. I mean, it really is. You have core topics, you have core doctrines, the person of Christ, the person of God, the saving acts of Christ on the cross and in the resurrection, who is the Holy Spirit, right? So you have these core doctrines, and then you get to these second and third tiers, where that's where the division comes in. And division can be good sometimes because it's difficult uh, to worship with somebody if they don't believe the Holy Spirit is, is active in the same way that you do. So division, while is you know I don't think it's ever the, the heart of God, but at the same time, I believe you can be divided but not divisive. Um, so I start off with that to say Seventh-day Adventists have a lot of different beliefs than Orthodox Christians. And some of them... Uh, don't cause problems, right? So Seventh-day Adventists believe in something called soul sleep, which is this idea that when a person dies, they essentially, like their soul goes to sleep. Their soul is in a resting state and that at the resurrection in the last days, they will come back, right? So I don't believe that. Um, I believe that there's scripture to point that that's not true. But I also don't think that that is core doctrine. I don't think that that's something that I should look at as Seventh-day Adventists and say, you're not actually a Christian. Because as we just saw with Jehovah's Witnesses, there's, there's hills to die on. When somebody says Jesus wasn't God, that dramatically affects uh, all of theology. That's, that's the kernel of theology for us. But so when Seventh-day Adventists say that soul sleep is something, and I, and I say it's not, I don't think that we should begin building walls. Now, Adventists do have... Um, some other, you know, beliefs. There, there's one in particular that I think can cause problems um, as as we try and have kind of an ecumenical mindset with with denominations, whatever denomination you are, is this the sanctuary doctrine. So this comes from uh, Adventist.org. Um, and it's, this is a, a brief description of sanctuary doctrine. Okay, so this is the idea simply that. Um, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he went into the first part of the heavenly temple and that in 1844, he entered into the second part. And now his, his, uh, his atoning work has changed to a certain degree. So I'll, I'll read this for you. There is a sanctuary in heaven, the true tabernacle that the Lord set up and not humans. Right away, this is true. Um, Hebrews talks about this temple. In it, Christ ministers on our behalf, making available to believers the benefits of his atoning sacrifice offered once for all on the cross. At his ascension, he was inaugurated as our great high priest and began his intercessory ministry, which was typified by the work of the high priest in the holy place of the early sanctuary. So right away. Um, yeah, I agree with all that. Um, I think you probably do too, depending on what background of Christianity you come from. But to some degree, we would all say, yeah, that's true. And like I said, we see it in Hebrews. Um, and so what, what changes though, 
is that Adventists say that in 1844, once again, we see something new. We see new revelation. At the end of the prophetic period of 2300 days, he entered the second and last phase of his atoning ministry, which was typified by the work of the high priest in the most holy place of the early sanctuary. So this is drawing comparison to the priests in the, the Jewish temple would go to different parts. And on the day of atonement, the most holy day, the high priest would go into the most holy part of the temple to make atonement for the nation of Israel. And so they're saying that in 1844, Jesus entered into the most holy place of the heavenly temple. And it says it is a work of investigative judgment, which is part of the ultimate disposition of all sin, typified by the cleansing of the ancient Hebrew sanctuary on the day of atonement. In that typical service, the sanctuary was cleansed with the blood of animal sacrifices, but the heavenly things are purified with the perfect sacrifice of the blood of Jesus. The investigative judgment reveals to heavenly intelligences who among the dead are asleep in Christ and therefore in him are deemed worthy to have part in the first resurrection. So basically, in a nutshell, and I mean, I don't, if you're a Seventh-day Adventist, don't think that I'm completely boiling everything down to this one little statement, but just to help other people understand is that they believe, you know, that essentially Jesus now is, is, has, is entered into the most holy place of the heavenly temple and is investigating who is actually a genuine Christ follower. And that that's among the dead who are asleep and soul sleep, as they would say, and then even those of us who are alive. And that's why they call it the investigative judgment. So I say all that to say there, that is a stark difference than most uh, Christians believe. Um, that is, that's completely different than what I believe, right? I don't believe that in 1844, Jesus Christ's role or, or his, his heavenly ministry changed. I believe he's been advocating in the most holy place, uh, since his ascension. And, and I believe that there was nothing special that happened in 1844. You begin to see that dangerous thing about like this new revelation, um, which brings us to our second part of Adventists theology, which is that it's, it's, it comes from people, um, in, in specifically Ellen White. Um, Ellen White is an extremely important figure in the Adventist movement. Um, her and her husband were the early leaders of the Adventist church. And she wrote, I mean, gosh, I, I've heard that Ellen White is the most published woman of all time. Um, she's written millions and millions and millions of words. In fact, kind of right there with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, Adventists have become a lot more, um, you know, evangelistic. Uh, I've gotten Adventist literature in my mailbox. They, they literally send out books written by Ellen White that describe their theology. And so Ellen White specifically is a figurehead, and she's long passed away now, a figurehead who, who many people would say is you can't question. Um, that, that her revelation as a prophet, um, in the same vein that many evangelicals, you know, feel that the Holy Spirit brings about the gift of prophecy, they would say Ellen White is, is a supreme example of that in that um, her prophecy uh, added this teaching, this new layer of theology, such as the sanctuary doctrine. Um, and I would say that's really dangerous. I would say that's, that's really scary because... Um, you know, scripture says, makes clear, like, do not add anything to these words. It, it, I believe in the complete work of Christ on the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. Um, I believe in the complete closing of, of scripture and the canon. And so I be, you begin to see some difficulties there. Now, all that being said, historically, Adventists have been welcomed into Orthodox Christianity because Whereas Jehovah's Witnesses would say Jesus was not God, he was a lesser God, 
Um, Mormons would say that he is a lesser God. He is our elder brother. He's like the same as us, really. Um, Adventists don't say that. Adventists hold high the Trinity, they have the person of Christ, the person of the Holy Spirit, so much so that they believe in the gift of prophecy. And so it, Adventists are difficult because, like I said, we don't like friendly fire. We don't want to look at in our Adventist friends, many of whom I know. And, um, you know, I have followers on Instagram that uh, are Adventists and very proud of it. And I enjoy seeing their devotion to God. Um, and so to answer the original question, I would say they are a tradition in, in the parlance of the question. They are a tradition heavy denomination. There are things that they hold on to that I would, that I struggle with as legalism, that I struggle with as, as added revelation. Um, but I don't think that we can throw out someone's salvation because they perhaps believe in revelation that's false. And see, that's where, especially like in the reform movement today, man, you see people throwing out each other's salvation, uh, like, like it's nothing like, because you have this one belief that I think is false, you're no longer a Christian. And I think we have to be really careful with that. I, I, I do think we need to be able to draw a line in the sand as we've seen with Jehovah's witness theology. And, and I'm sure we'll discuss Latter-day Saints in a, in a, in a future episode, but I, I, I'm very hesitant to throw out somebody's salvation because they believe something that I don't believe when it comes to that second and third level uh, of theology. And so let me know what you think about Adventists. Uh, you know, if you believe, if you think I'm wrong, let me know. But, but I, I'm very hesitant to say that they're not Christians because they, they believe that in 1844, Jesus changed. Now, if you are an Adventist listening to this or watching this, I would say, please be careful about like really discern whether or not the words of somebody who just claims to be a prophet, um, like really discern whether that should be true. Um, and especially if all of a sudden 1844, something new happened, um, you know, why is it that God didn't choose to reveal that, um, before, you know, the, the 19th century. Um, and if you're an Adventist, let me know what you think. I want to hear, but, um, like I said, I, I struggle with this authority that they give to Ellen White, um, and her words and, and, and many other Adventist theologians. So, and so that, that leads us to our last question. And it's this, what makes a false gospel? Where can Christians be flexible and where do they need to draw a line in the sand? Um, or actually the question was, and where should they take a stand? And so I'll simply say this as, as we finish up today, look at who the person of Christ is in a group's theology. If you begin to see that scripture is being manipulated, twisted around, left off the table to define who Jesus is, that's a problem. Scripture makes clear who Jesus is, who Jesus was. And, and now there's different interpretations, right? But Scripture makes clear that, that Jesus was the Son of God. Je scripture makes clear that Jesus was the Messiah. Scripture makes clear that Jesus was God. Um, and so when you begin to see these things, like Jehovah's Witnesses would say that Jesus was created first as the Archangel Michael, that's not in, that's not there. <laughs> you know, that's just something that was added by Jehovah's Witness teachers later. Um, so when you see the person of Christ being manipulated and changed, that's, that's false, right? The word of God, what does a group believe about the word of God, right? So you see in some instances, um, right in the case of Latter-day Saints, words being added, like whole books being added and they are held as scripture. See, it's important to, to know that in, in the Adventist groups, Ellen White's are not, Ellen White's words are not said to be scripture. Now, some people might treat them that way, but they're not said to be scripture. In the LDS movement, the Book of Mormon is held just as high as the 66 books of the New and the Old Testament. And so you begin to see 
the unraveling of authority there. Um, I would also say too, you know, like in the case of Jehovah's Witnesses, the fact that the word cannot be interpreted apart from Jehovah's Witness leaders. That's a huge problem. Like that's dangerous. Don't follow people who say you need my interpretation and my interpretation only. I was a student pastor for a long time and I would tell students all the time, don't just believe everything I say because you trust me. Like investigate for yourself. That's hugely important. And if you're part of a group that says don't investigate for yourself, just trust everything I say, you need to question that. Um, and so the word of God, and then also the, suprem the supremacy of man. And this is where the, the difficulty comes in. When you think of groups like um, the da David Koresh um, and, and the Jim Joneses of the world, um, the fact that these people were completely unquestioning, you were not allowed to question them um, to the point of death, to the point of suffering on behalf of that person's will. Um, I would say we need to quickly draw, you know, uh, point out that that is um, abusive behavior and that, that that is hugely problematic and leads to stories like David Koresh and Jim Jones. Um, and so, so yeah, so, so cults and different denominations are a difficult topic, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on those. So um, hit me up on Instagram. Let me know what you think of, of, these, of, of some other groups and, and how you found the best ways to share the gospel with them, uh, to discern which groups represent a true gospel of Jesus Christ and which are derivative, which are offshoots. Um, and make sure to follow me at allthings.allpeople on Instagram. If you have questions, thoughts, concerns, hit me up at jeremy at allthingsallpeople.org. You can also check out my website at allthingsallpeople.org. Um, and make sure to leave an awesome review for the podcast as we start this out. Um, I'm super excited. There's going to be a, an insane, like I'm blown away by the people who've agreed to be on this podcast. I can't wait to show you. I can't wait for you to see. Um, there's well-known authors. I have an archbishop coming up. Um, pastors, worship leaders, some who are friends of mine personally, some who I've just been able to bump into and say, hey, be on the podcast. And they're like, yeah, for some reason they say yes. So I'm just going to believe that that's the Lord. Um, and so you and I get to benefit from that. And so make sure to subscribe uh, to the podcast, follow on whatever your podcast app is and leave a great review so that other people see it and that they can hear. And that, as I say, we can all seek to understand the world around us better through understanding the world of religions, apologetics, and everything else. And so until next time, see ya.